Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. We are in the foothills of a Cold War. That's what Henry Kissinger told a Bloomberg reporter at an economic forum in Beijing last November. In the past few years, we've been on a roller coaster in terms of our relationship with China. We've had a trade war that has taken the form of the U.S. slapping tariffs on around $550 billion of Chinese goods headed towards the U.S., and China leveling around $185 billion of U.S. products with their own levies. So we're back here today with part two of our two-part spotlight on China. Last episode, we focused on China's rapid economic growth since the 1970s and what it must do to sustain that level of growth moving forward. In this episode, we'll address some of the challenges China is facing as it pushes into the future, especially as it relates to the tricky relationship between the two largest economies in the world, the U.S. and China. Joining us again, we're very privileged to have Dr. Stephen Roche from Yale University's Jackson School of Global Affairs. Stephen, thanks for sticking around for part two. Thank you, Tony. I look forward to um, pushing this debate a little bit further into the real-time um, tensions that are playing out uh, between these two large and critically important economies in the world. So, Stephen, we kicked off the first episode by discussing China's phenomenal growth story over the last 40 years. It's become a major trading partner for the U.S., and when we look that we have the two largest economies in the world embroiled in this significant trade conflict with very deep geostrategic undertones that relate to Hong Kong and Taiwan, somewhat exacerbated by COVID-19 in certain, certain respects. It's somewhat reminiscent of this frosty relationship we had with Russia, where we were barely on speaking terms. How did we get to this point? It seems to have gone so terribly wrong. And do you think that we could pull the relationship back to a, to a healthier position? Well, we can hope so. But, you know, the bottom line is um, this is a relationship problem. In a book I wrote several years ago, I looked at U.S.-China uh, tensions that back then, when I wrote the book in late 2014, early 2015, had really not uh, become a serious problem. But I framed the relationship in sort of the human behavioral model of codependency when two partners in a relationship become so reliant on one another that they begin to lose sight of their own journeys. And so when one partner decides to address that problem and go its its own way, the other one feels uh, scorned, left behind, and lashes out. I will admit it's a stretch to frame economic relationships from a human behavioral perspective, but it enabled me to speculate that problem was coming because China was changing its growth model. We talked about that in the first episode, uh, moving from exports and investment as key sources of growth, uh, internal private consumption. And this change in China's economic character has really not been accompanied by any meaningful shifts in America's own economic agenda. And so the, the conflict uh, that has emerged is just as much an outgrowth of um, some of the vulnerabilities in the in the U.S. economy as it is 
uh, an outgrowth of the allegations that have been made with respect to uh, China's alleged un- unfair trading practices, especially in the technology mm-hmm. and innovation uh, areas. So we, in addressing uh, the tensions, there are issues we can certainly focus on with respect to China, but there's a lot of stuff that we need to look at ourselves that are a reflection of our own economic issues. So before we get to our issues, let's focus for a moment further on China. And that's how we ended the last episode around the line between fair and unfair technology use. And again, you've talked about the critical importance for China to be able to create a base of domestic innovation, technology innovation, in order to not get caught in this so-called middle-income trap um, and to build the method and the processes to continue to innovate on a going-forward basis. So certainly there are things that are malicious or that seem to be clearly unfair. One company hacks another company's web and they steal, clearly steal trade secrets. Um, that's not fair. But then you have a lot of what are so-called these forced technology transfers, um, let's say that a U.S. company wants to build airplanes in China, and China says, okay, terrific, you want to build airplanes here, sign on the dotted line. And what this agreement says, you're going to get from us this great market to be able to sell your airplanes. You're going to get some labor from us, perhaps at a better rate than you could get domestically in your country. But we're going to get, in return, some technology, and you don't have to do it. No one's forcing, no one's holding a gun to your head. You don't have to sign. But if you want to sign, then there's a, a transfer. Is that forced in some type of um, untoward way, or is that the way business works? Um, when you really break it down, and you talked about Ambassador Lighthizer's report in the last episode, and whether or not there's really a lot of untoward practices going on, how bad is China's behavior today, you think? Look, I'm, I'm certain that there have been examples of bad behavior um, on, on both sides of this critical issue. But, um, you know, just going back to the allegations made by U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, in his um, so-called Section 301 report of March of 2018, where he laid this out with great detail, he basically admitted that he had no hard evidence whatsoever that the uh, the technology transfers that do occur uh, under joint ventures have, in fact, been forced as you just uh, alluded to. A joint venture, I mean, you know, what is it? It's a commitment by two partners to, to build a, a shared business. And in um, implementing the strategy to build that business under shared ownership, of, of course there is a commingling of um, talent, strategies, uh, ideas, uh, distribution channels, uh, and even from time to time some proprietary technology. But again, as you alluded to, this is a voluntary agreement. No one forces you to sign. And the idea that you know there has been um, pressure that remains to be seen. In the interest of full disclosure, I, I was a, a board member of a joint venture in China in the um, uh, early 2000s. Uh, a joint venture formed by my former employer Morgan Stanley and. Uh, a leading bank in China, the China Construction Bank. Together, we built China's first investment bank, CICC, China's uh, International Capital Corporation. And um, I participated actively in in very complex 
discussions and strategy development with Chinese partners, and in no time was there any forcing of um, the sharing of our financial technologies, proprietary products that we had developed at Morgan Stanley. My travels in um, in China, living there and uh, participating in business discussions with a number of um, uh, different industries, both on the U.S. side and the Chinese side, the notion that these transfers were forced, done through coercion, with all but a few exceptions, mainly in the pharmaceutical areas. That impression, I think, is, is really one that is extremely difficult to substantiate. Your airplane um, example, Boeing, our, our largest exporter to um, China, relies on uh, at least two joint ventures. And they set up these joint ventures to deal with parts of aircraft assembly rather than turning over the, the critical components of, of, of how to design and fly an airplane. They're, they're, these are smart businessmen. They know what they're doing. They're not going to just open up the, the keys to the kingdom just to do business in China. You're right to focus on this as an important issue, but it's one that I think does not really withstand careful scrutiny in terms of the veracity uh, or validity of the, the charges that are being raised by uh, the Trump administration. Within the last two days, we received a report from China around its economic growth that shows that the Chinese economy is recovering very nicely from COVID, almost like a V. And indeed, all the global markets, including the U.S. markets, cheered that news. So we want the Chinese economy to grow. We want China to be bigger. To, it becomes a bigger market for us. These economies are very interconnected. The healthier that one is, the healthier the others are. So what is it that we're really so upset about? In other words, you've, you've written very articulately around our own problems, probably the, the, the most leading one being our massive and growing current account deficit. Is it that we're really concerned about our current account deficit and we're sort of blaming it on China? Is it that we're afraid of China's hegemonic tendencies in terms of their dominion over that part of the world, South China Sea, Taiwan, et cetera? Where should our attention really be focused in terms of our relationship with China? I would touch on a few a few issues that you just raised in, in posing that question. Number one, our, our current account uh, imbalance. We run a deficit on our balance of international payments, the current account, in large part because our domestic saving rate, the sum total of savings of households, businesses, and the government sector is anemic. Prior to the outbreak of the pandemic, our domestic savings rate, uh, net of depreciation, which is what you want to look at to get the saving that's available to fund economic growth, it was, it, it was only 1.4% of national income in the first quarter of 2020. And now in this era where we're going from already large deficits and low saving to an explosion of budget deficits, the likes of which we have never experienced, that will take our domestic savings rate deeply into negative territory, which means we're actually liquidating uh, our saving, our current account problems are going to get more and more acute. When you run a huge current account deficit like 
we have been doing, and like it's going to go from bad to worse uh, in the years immediately ahead, you run trade deficits to attract the foreign savings from abroad, and you run them with many, many countries. Last year, 2019, we had trade deficits with 102 countries around the world. China was the biggest, yes, but by higher math, that leaves another 101 uh, countries. And so we have a multilateral problem, and unless we address the weak saving that drives that, attacking one trading partner will simply mean we're diverting our our trade deficit from a low-cost producer like China to higher-cost producers around the world, and that's the equivalent of a tax hike on American businesses and on American families. So the Trump administration and other administrations as well have, I think, really missed the boat here in attempting to um, reduce the bilateral trade deficit with China in a world afflicted with a multilateral trade imbalance. You can't fix a multilateral problem uh, with a bilateral approach. I can't help but asking you about some of your recent views on the dollar because your emphasis on our poor savings rate and our current account deficit has been integral to your view on the dollar. Well, the dollar's had a great run since the end of 2011, but that, that run is over in my view. Uh, the dollar was up about 27, 28% from late 2011 through early 2020. I look for the dollar to drop 35% over the next couple of years, the dollar index, that is, reflecting, one, this explosive growth in our current account deficit that I alluded to earlier, but secondly, our um, unfortunate squandering of our leadership role uh, in the world. We're leading the way in deglobalization, decoupling, trade protectionism. But we've pulled out of major global institutions from the um, the World Health Organization. We've been threatening to do the same with our North American uh, Treaty Organization, NATO, WTO. We pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership in the first few days of the Trump administration. And we are doing a terrible job relative to other major economies in addressing the, the coronavirus. Our performance for a country of our stature is nothing short of appalling compared to uh, other major countries. And finally, uh, you know, this racial catharsis we're going through is certainly one that, that draws our own leadership and lack of vision uh, into serious questions. So for the multiplicity of reasons, I think the dollar is uh, headed lower. When I made this call a couple of months ago, I received more than the usual amount of hate mail that I get. Uh, and the, the questions were like, you know, if you don't like the dollar, who, who's going to benefit? And there's no other place in the world where um, investors would like to put their money. And I totally disagree. I think the euro is the most unloved major currency in the world, and it's been very weak over the last seven or eight years. And I think the euro is headed higher, especially in light of the recently agreed compact of um, Angela Merkel of Germany and Emmanuel Macron of France to establish this uh, next generation EU fund and begin the process of issuing a sovereign 
pan-European bond that would begin to challenge treasuries as risk-free assets. I also like the Chinese renminbi, which has appreciated 51% on a broad trade-weighted basis since 2004. And if China stays the course of reforms, uh, there's plenty more to go there as well. So the dollar is not the only game in town. 35% drop seems like a large number, but the dollar fell by 33% in the 70s, 33% again in the mid-80s, and um, you know, about 28% in the early 2000s. And so you know, I think we're headed down again. Every president makes mistakes, obviously, but certainly one of the early and, and big mistakes made in this administration was the withdrawal from the TPP. And the, the broader idea is that the Chinese relationship seems to be one that would really admit of a better outcome through a multilateral rather than a, a bilateral approach, given our, our putative aims. Just tactically, it seems that trying to go it alone versus the Chinese has been um, a, a tough, a tough uh, course to try to take. Looking at China, when you look at some of the things that they've done, whether it be the, the One Belt and Road Initiative, um, where they've gone around the world and tried to really insert themselves into the infrastructure um, developments of, of other countries. Do you think that China is untowardly hegemonic, which is a word I used earlier, that they have unrealistic ambitions of dominance? Or do you think that their behavior is sort of in line with what one would expect from a the second largest economy in the world looking to, to do better? The honest answer is we don't know. Historically, China has not had great territorial uh, ambitions, although you, know, you see um, what they've been doing in militarizing the South China Sea, following earlier um, uh, tensions in the East China Sea with uh, Japan, recent skirmishes on the uh, Indian border. Those are disconcerting uh, developments. China definitely has aspirations to achieve uh, great power status by the year 2050 or 2049, to actually be precise, to mark the 100-year anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. But um, these aspirations don't say that China wants to be the dominant power. They simply want to be sitting at the table with what they would perceive to be other great powers. Certainly, there are a number of issues that disturb observers in the West with respect to uh, China's behavior. I think the economic um, uh, tensions are more of a foil, as I alluded to earlier, for some of the problems in our own economies. But, uh, you know, the, the tensions in Taiwan and certainly in, in Hong Kong, in light of the new recently enacted national security bill by the, the PRC, the problems with um, uh, ethnic minorities in the remote western um, uh, province of Xinjiang—you know, these are these are big issues. They don't necessarily, however, lead you to conclude that China is after hegemonic domination. They do speak, however, to a China that is uh, certainly not behaving in ways that are uh, consistent. Uh, or well aligned with the norms as we know them in the West. So where do you see the opportunity going forward? Do you see it associated with primarily 
a change in power in Washington? Do you see opportunities either way after the election? And what are the what are the major opportunities that you see? Well, look, I'm a, a big believer that um, we number one need to recognize the stakes of a deepening conflict, and number two need to do everything in our power to avoid that. I am hopeful that um, we can return to more constructive engagement, but to do that, uh, we need some specific targets or goals in mind. Number one, a bilateral investment treaty. A bilateral investment treaty, or a bit, is something that countries have used all over the world for a number of years to open up their markets to each other. China wants to get into our market. We want to get into China's market. Nothing would benefit our multinationals more than having a piece of the world's largest growth story. And by doing that, we could um, uh, provide a rules-based uh, system of uh, access uh, to their markets and their access to ours that would eliminate uh, the need for foreign investment caps and, and take the technology forcing issue from joint ventures off the table because there wouldn't be joint ventures anymore. So let's do um, a bilateral investment treaty. Secondly, we need to um, really address the, the cyber issue jointly. Certainly there's been allegations going back and forth on this one for a number of years. Both countries hack. Um, China is always singled out for being particularly aggressive here. But this is a global problem, not a bilateral problem, and we could take the lead in forging a global cybersecurity issue. Thirdly, we need to save more. China needs to save less, and that will take the trade imbalance uh, issue uh, out of the equation. And fourth and finally is the nature of the dialogue. We don't talk on a high-level constructive basis on a regular basis, and that's too bad. We used to have these strategic and economic dialogues. We've given up on that. And uh, we need to go back to a more permanent uh, office that houses senior officials on both sides that are working full-time on this relationship. And if we do those four things, or I, look, I'd take two of the four, uh, I think we'd, we'd be able to get this relationship on more constructive terms than it is today. And just in the very short term, the last question, very tactical one. We, of course, did have these three years, two, two to three years of angst in the, in the markets around this idea of a trade deal with China. And we reached the so-called trade uh, phase one trade deal. And while there's not really a prospect of a phase two trade deal, we do have a mandatory review of the phase one deal coming up in August. Do you expect anything material to come out of that process that would move the needle either in terms of our relationship or in terms of the political environment one way or the other, or is that more of a formality in your mind? I don't expect anything big to come out of this. Unfortunately, I thought phase one was a bogus deal when it was signed in January uh, 15th of um, this year. It violated the very point I stressed earlier in these discussions, trying to resolve America's multilateral trade imbalances with 102 countries by... Um, putting pressure on China to reduce its bilateral deficit with us. That would have accomplished next to nothing. And if you look at the purchase trajectory of the Chinese of the, um, of the goods they were supposed to buy under phase one, uh, they're well short because of COVID and other factors. So this is not you know, a, an effective way to resolve our difference. It was Terrific. Well, let me take a, a stab at summarizing for us what I think the three key takeaways are from the episode. 
And I'll start with, I think there's been a big emphasis here today on our, what we call the current account deficit, the trade deficit, but it's not just with China, it's with the world broadly speaking. And that deficit itself, which is essentially funded by borrowing from other countries, is really going to imperil our own growth at some point and will also imperil the dollar. So it's something that we have to keep a very close eye on, particularly in the context of these these rescue packages, which are certainly necessary right now, but nonetheless adding to the problem in the COVID environment. The second thing is that there is a very critical dance on the technology arena between the U.S. and China uh, as it relates to innovation, as it relates to the potential to work together, but also the potential to protect those ideas and innovations on each side of the relationship. And as we see how this plays out, we're going to have to be very, very careful whether this could just drive a a very lasting wedge between the countries, um, or it could, um, through the kinds of investment that you're talking about, um, be an opportunity for us to work more together and to dial down the conflict. So we'll see what happens there. And the third takeaway is simply the need for a more constructive and potentially multilateral approach to dealing with the relationship with China, um, China's ascendancy, and indeed our own trade imbalances in the world. And that regardless of who is um, leading our country, that may be an approach that may be more fruitful for us moving forward. So we'll continue to, to watch these issues very carefully. Stephen, I just want to thank you again for your insights over these two episodes. It's just been a great pleasure to have you. Thank you, Tony. And I appreciate uh, the breadth and depth of your questions. And um, this is a big issue and uh, there's rest assured a lot more to come. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. 
As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.